Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And what I'm doing this week is something that I should have done last episode. Last episode I uh, felt that I had covered all of the uh, stories in Stephen King's collection, Night Shift, um, and I covered, I had last summer, I had covered a bunch of the, the movie adaptations, including The Mangler <clears throat> and uh, Graveyard Shift. And then last episode, I moved on to Skeleton Crew. But my bad, guys, I completely forgot one of the, um, one of the stories found within Night Shift, and that, of course, is Lawnmower Man. So I had a, a just a, a crazy sense of deja vu. I was like, wait a minute. I could have sworn that I had recorded a, an episode on the Lawnmower Man. Um, I remember watching it. I remember writing down some notes. And I could have sworn that I had recorded it last summer. I guess I didn't. I guess I never put it out. So here I am. I'm back. I know that I was forging ahead with getting back into the stories of Skeleton Crew. But I am stepping back into the world of Night Shift to give you my thoughts on the... Oh, on the uh, movie adaptation, I guess if you want to call it that, of Stephen King's uh, Lawnmower Man. But first, before I get any farther, um, I do want to uh, plug, as I have done before, I want to continue to plug ka-tet19.net. Um, for those of you who are longtime listeners, know that for the last year or so, I have been um, doing everything I possibly can to promote Matt Kellick's uh, products. Because if you are a Stephen King fan, if you are a constant uh, listener and a constant reader, then you will know that these shirts are where it's at. These shirts are the real deal. I'm currently wearing one right now. Um, and it's not, it's not as if I put on these shirts just for the purposes of podcasting. And it's not like I am lying to all of you when I say I'm wearing one of the shirts right now. That's not the case. I'm actually wearing, I got home from work. I decided to change into some comfy clothes. So I put on a pair of jeans, um, threw on a hat, and I put on my The Man in Black Fled Across the Desert and The Gunslinger Followed uh, t-shirt. And it was a toss-up in the air between that and my Oi t-shirt uh, or my stand t-shirt. All of these you can get at kadashtet19.net. He's working on some some new stuff. It's phenomenal. If you want a Captain Trips t-shirt, you can get it there. If you want a Nazala t-shirt, you can get it there. If you want a Takuro Spirit, I think that he has uh, Takuro Spirits uh, t-shirts. I know that he created a design for it. I would love to get one of those t-shirts, but there's a lot of options there for you if you are a fan of Stephen King, the works of Stephen King, fan of the Dark Tower, fan of it. Um, he's branching out outside of the world of the Dark Tower. Uh, the stuff is great, guys. It feels good, it looks good, and you're rocking Stephen King wear, which, you know, you can't ask for more than that. Okay, guys, um, I don't have any iTunes reviews right now. Um, but with that said, why don't you all head on over to iTunes, and if you haven't left a um, review on iTunes, and a review would greatly, greatly help me out. Um, it would keep the, 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 the Stephen King cast... Um, up towards the top of the search of Stephen King. So it would really, really help me out. So like I said, a couple minutes on your hands, um, just write a nice review, and it really helps me out. Um, and even though I don't have 
uh, iTunes reviews to read right now. I do have emails, listener emails, and you guys know that I can't do it without you. So if at any point you want to share your thoughts, head on over to your email and then type in stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and you can find me there. So why don't you just shoot me an email, um, send all your thoughts my way, and I'll be able to share it with you um, and all the other listeners uh, out there. So up first, we have Toby who writes, Constant Reader, I made something you might be interested in. Over the last year and a half, I've been making an EP inspired by The Stand, and I just finished it this week. It's going to be released in the next couple of weeks. Um, And I would love to share my music with other people who love Stephen King, so if you'll have me, I'd be thrilled to join in via Skype for a conversation on your podcast. So, um, Toby, maybe this summer um, you you and I can touch base and and figure that out because I love the idea of people out there making – art, um, original art based on the works of Stephen King. I, I think that it's important to, to share, um, you know, the, these types of, of pieces. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I should be in touch. Up next, we have Dakota who writes, Hey, how's it going? I just wanted to start off by saying I love your podcast. I look at your episodes like little treats to have after finishing each Stephen King story that I go through. I tend to kind of drone through some of the more boring and less obvious plot driving points of some of the books, but after listening to your podcasts, you've shown me to stop doing that. As in 11.22.63, the whole midsection about his life as a teacher in Jody, I started to lose interest. But then later when I discovered your podcast and listened to that episode, it all changed. I realized I was reading a lot of books just to finish them, which makes no sense. The whole middle part of that book was the great part of the story, exposing late 1950s and early 60s life. I now read books to enjoy and not to finish, so thank you for helping me with something that none of my middle or high school teachers ever thought to teach. Anyways, I wanted to discuss the dead zone with you for a minute, if that's okay. Like I said earlier, the book kind of does seem to drone on in the middle there with lots of family drama and Johnny's experience in the hospital and recovering, but after really reflecting on it, Stephen King has a magic way of putting himself in someone else's shoes. I couldn't imagine that kind of complicated recovery both personally and physically. But curiously enough, what disturbed me most about the book was not fate chance, or a normal guy rejecting a power that was forced into his life. It was the mirroring of our current day reality with the reality in the book in regards to Greg Stilson. I don't want to come off politically divisive to you or your podcast. Um, Dakota, don't worry. Um, I myself have come off as uh, politically divisive um, to members of of, uh, the the podcast listening community. Um, But so, so don't worry, I've got that covered for you. But as a Stephen King reader, I'm going to assume that you're not a Trump supporter, and I don't want to come off as a super liberal, but what King meant to sound like a caricature of insane politics came off frighteningly similar to Donald Trump. Think about it. Stilson was a Republican who tapped into the blue-collar population's rejection of normal politics, just like Trump. Stilson wore a hard hat, a symbol of the working man in construction, to connect with the people. Trump wears a trucker's hat, a symbol of the working man in trucking, to connect with the people. And what really brought it home was on page 336 with his conversation with O'Donnell in the Timsdale pub. Johnny sees the signed picture of Stilson hanging in this bar, and O'Donnell explains how he got to meet Stilson, and Johnny says... Sounds like you think he's one hell of a guy. And O'Donnell responds with, I'd be tempted to put my bare knuckles on anyone who said the other way. Which immediately struck a chord in my stomach with all those videos you see at Trump rallies of liberals and conservatives screaming in each other's faces over Trump. My heart skipped a beat on this page. It honestly scared me. It would have 
if I had read this book before the election um, last November, maybe it would have scared me as much as it did. Maybe it wouldn't have scared me as much as it did. And it's not the same kind of fright as his other books. It's darker than that. Let's just hope Trump isn't the tiger that Stilson was. I haven't finished your podcast on this episode yet, so sorry if you covered this similarly. Um, I had recorded my episode on the dark, on the dead zone long before uh, Trump had um, entered national politics uh, and long before he had become the president of the United States. Um, But I... um, but, you know, when I record these episodes, I don't go out of my way to say, all right, here we go. I cannot wait to annoy anyone that does not share my political belief. That's not why I sit down to, um, to podcast. But and I've thought about this because everyone is entitled to uh, an informed opinion. I, uh, I am reviewing books and stories and movies based on someone who happens to be an extremely liberal writer. Um, so I, I do want to, to stress that. And yes, I am very liberal myself. Um, so my politics are going to shine through just like Stephen King's politics shine through in every single thing that he writes. So I just, I, I do want to stress that. So, um, yes, uh, Dakota, you are, you are on the money. I, I completely agree. Um, there is something eerily prescient um, with the dead zone and, and how well it works today, unfortunately. Also, the ending, uh, Dakota continues. Sometimes Stephen King endings are a little underwhelming, let's face it, but I really, really enjoyed how he took this one, how instead of the classic, take the shot now, you're a hero scenario, Stilson lives and Johnny dies. But when Johnny grabs his ankle and all King had to write was, everything had changed. Ah, I love that. It was just a little bit of curveball that always brings me back to King, and that's why he's King. Anyway, sorry if this was a little long. My group of friends aren't exactly the literary type. I'm a bit of an outlier, ha. Huh? So it's nice to be able to chat with someone of my favorite author for once. Also, I wanted to suggest David Foster Wallace, if you've never heard of him. Um, you have the comprehension and critical thinking skills to really enjoy him. Please keep, in, please keep making podcasts. Bye. Dakota, um, thank you. Thank you for all of that. Very insightful stuff that you that you presented here. I have heard of David Foster Wallace. I've never read anything by him, um, unfortunately. Maybe at some point I will definitely get around to doing that. Okay, guys. So with that out of the way, um, I am going to head and turn my attention to The Lawnmower Man. Uh 1992's The Lawnmower Man, starring Jeff Fahey. Uh, and before I get into the analysis itself, I want to read the Wikipedia summary from which I can build my analysis. The Lawnmower Man is a 1992 science fiction action horror film directed by Brett Leonard and written by Brett Leonard and Gimmel Everett. The Lawnmower Man is named after a Stephen King short story of the same name, but aside from a single scene, the stories are unrelated. The film stars Jeff Fahey as Job Smith, a simple-minded gardener, and Pierce Brosnan as Dr. Lawrence Angelo, a scientist who decides to experiment on him. The film was originally titled Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man, but King successfully sued the producers for attaching his name to the film and stated in court documents that the film bore no meaningful resemblance to his story. An earlier short film, also titled The Lawnmower Man... Um, is a more faithful adaptation of the short story. It was directed by Jim Gonis in 1987 and Friend of the Pod. 
After the success of The Lawnmower Man, Leonard would later make another virtual reality film called Virtuosity, starring Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe in 1995. A sequel, Lawnmower Man 2, Beyond Cyberspace, was released in 1996 with Austin O'Brien as the only returning actor from the original film. Okay. Dr. Lawrence Angelo works for Virtual Space Industries, running experiments in increasing the intelligence of chimpanzees using drugs and virtual reality. One of the chimps escapes using the warfare tactics he was being trained for. Dr. Angelo is generally a pacifist who would rather explore the intelligence-enhancing potential of his research without applying it for military purposes. His wife, Caroline, is unhappy with the way he is ignoring her to focus on this project. Job Smith, a local greenskeeper with an intellectual disability, lives in the garden shed owned by the local priest, Father Francis McKean. McKean's brother, Terry, is a local landscape gardener and employs Job to help him with odd jobs. Father McKean punishes the challenged Job with a belt whenever he fails to complete his chores. Dr. Angelo realizes he needs a human subject to work with, and he spots Job mowing his lawn. Parker Parquette, Dr. Angelo's young neighbor, is friends with Job. Dr. Angelo invites both of them over to play some virtual reality games. Learning more about Job, Angelo persuades him to participate in his experiments, letting him know it will make him smarter. Job agrees and begins the program. Dr. Angelo makes it a point to redesign all the intelligence-boosting treatments without the aggression factors used in the chimpanzee experiments. Job soon becomes smarter, for example, learning Latin in only two hours. Meanwhile, Job also begins a sexual relationship with a young, rich widow, Marnie. However, Job begins to display telepathic abilities and has hallucinations. He continues training at the lab until an accident makes Dr. Angelo shut the program down. The project director, Sebastian Timms, employed by a mysterious agency known as The Shop, keeps tabs on the progress of the experiment and discreetly swaps Dr. Angelo's new medications with the old Project 5 supplies, reintroducing the aggression factors into the treatment. Job develops develops telekinetic and pyrokinetic powers and takes Marnie to the lab to make love to her while in virtual reality. Something goes wrong in the simulation when Job's virtual avatar becomes violent, attacking her mind directly. Marnie is driven insane, laughing endlessly at nothing. Job's powers continue to grow, but the treatments are also affecting his mental stability, and he decides to extract revenge on those who abused him when he was dumb. Father McKean is engulfed in flames. A bully named Jake is put into a canatonic state by a mental lawnmower man, continually mowing his brain, and a lawnmower invention of Job's run-down herald Peter's abusive father. Job uses his telepathic abilities to make the investigating police attribute all to bizarre accidents in front of Dr. Angelo. Job believes his final stage of evolution has become pure energy in the VSI computer mainframe and from there reach into all the systems of the world. He promises his birth will be signaled by every telephone on the planet ringing simultaneously. The shop sends a team to capture Job, but they are ineffective against his abilities and he scatters their molecules. Job uses the lab equipment to enter the mainframe computer, abandoning his body to become a wholly virtual being, leaving his body behind like a husk. Dr. Angelo remotely infects the VSI computer, encrypting all of the links to the outside world, trapping Job in the mainframe. As Job searches for an unencrypted network connection, Dr. Angelo prime bombs to destroy the building. Feeling responsible for what has happened to Job, Angelo then joins him in virtual reality to try and reason with him. Job overpowers and crucifies him, then continues to search for a network connection. Peter runs into the building. Job still cares for him and allows Dr. Angelo to go free in order to rescue Peter. Job forces a computer-connected security door to open, allowing Peter and Dr. Angelo to escape. 
Job escapes through a back door before, building, before the building is destroyed in multiple explosions. Back at home with Peter, Dr. Angelo and Peter's mother Carla, who has become a romantic interest, are about to leave when their telephone rings, followed by the noise of a second and then hundreds of telephone rings all around the globe. The plot of Stephen King's 1975 short story, The Lawnmower Man, concerns Harold Parquette, who hires the Pastoral Greenery and Outdoor Service, Inc. to cut his lawn. The serviceman who arrives to do the job has a lawnmower that mows the lawn by itself when he crawls naked behind the mower eating grass. The serviceman is is actually a satyr who worships the Greek god Pan. When Parquette tries to call the police, the mower and its owner ritually kill him as a sacrifice to Pan. The film's original script, written by, by director Brett Leonard and producer Gimmel Everett, was titled Cyber God and had nothing to do with King's short story. New Line Cinema held the film rights to King's story and decided to combine Cyber God with some minor elements of King's The Lawnmower Man. The resulting film, originally titled Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man, differed so much from the source material that King sued the lawnmakers um, to remove his name from the title. I apologize for the redundancy. Um, but that's just how Wikipedia is written. After the two court rulings in King's favor, New Line still did not comply and initially released the home video version as Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man. On King's official website, the film is not listed among the films based on his work. The Lawnmower Man was released in Japan under the title Virtual Wars. Um, references to the story include... Uh, the short story includes the scene where Job kills Peter's father with the lawnmower Big Red, the aftermath in which the police state that they found some of his remains in the birdbath, and the name of Terry McKean's company, Pastoral Greenery. Okay, guys. Um, that was... Uh, unnecessarily detailed and long. Um, so we're, let's get to the review, which will not be as thorough or uh, as, as long as the Wikipedia summary. And I do want to state right now that if you are listening to my review of The Lawnmower Man... Before you listen to my review, you really should go on over to another podcast, a much better podcast and certainly more popular, but um, How Did This Get Made? And at How Did This Get Made, they covered The Lawnmower Man before I did, and I they will have done it better than I will have been able to do it, I'm sure. A lot funnier, um, and it's just it's a better ride, so... Yeah, certainly you can come back and listen to my episode of The Lawnmower Man, but you really should want to check them out first because they do a great job breaking this ridiculous movie down. So uh, this movie begins with the following text on screen. By the turn of the millennium, a technology known as virtual reality will be in widespread use. It will allow you to enter computer-generated artificial worlds as unlimited as the imagination itself. Its creators foresee millions of positive uses, while others fear it as a new form of mind control. So right away, guys, this just feels early 90s. It reeks of early 90s. And maybe it's because I'm, I don't know, getting a little older and a little bit more nostalgic. Um, There's something I find so charming about the zeitgeist of virtual reality of that time period. Um, There was this... Uh, there was a short-lived um, show on Fox um, called VR5 um, that, that immediately comes to mind. Uh, Virtuosity, Strange Days, Videodrome, um, Existence, 
And uh, Keanu Reeves will star, uh, first star in um, Johnny Mnemonic before solidifying the concept of the virtual world with uh, The Matrix in 99. So virtual reality was creeping around the periphery, um, and everyone assumed that it was going to be the next big thing. Now, flash forward to 2018, virtual reality is still just creeping around the periphery. I mean, the closest thing that we have is the Oculus Rift, um, but that has not taken off with widespread ubiquity. To make a long story short, despite the uh, ominous text at the beginning of this movie, we are still just not there. But dial it back. Um, It's not 2018 when this movie is made. It's 1992. So what does 1992 technology look like? Now, around that time, computers are becoming more commonplace. The earliest version (laughs) of what one day is going to become Wikipedia is encyclopedia software program known as Encarta. Floppy disks at that point are all the rage. Um, In a few years, more and more people will begin to log into the Internet um, at the time, wasn't uh, commonly referred to as the internet. More people, I you know, remember, called it the World Wide Web. Uh, no one knows what the lingo is yet. Uh, they're still kind of making it up. No one knows what it's going to look like. But one thing is for sure, it is a pain in the ass to access it. Sorry, I'm sorry for that noise, um, but God, that brings me back. Um, for those of you old enough, um, I'm sure that, that that noise brings brings you back too. But that was how we had to access the internet, and um, God, man, did it take forever uh, to, to actually get through. I mean, we, we really truly are living in um, an amazing age where the technology is so quick. I mean, our computers are on our phone, and we can get anything in the snap of a finger. But um, back in the day, oh, God, I mean, it took forever for the phone to connect the internet and then once it was connected there was no guarantee that it was going to move at anything resembling a fast pace it would take 20 minutes to, to download one picture it was awful it was an awful experience but we were all addicted to it even back then i mean for me that my my earliest days accessing the internet came through um prodigy and then at&t uh you know world net um before, you know, like the rest of the world, I, I joined the ranks of AOL. You know, I mean, there was only so many times I could resist that disc that they sent to me in the mail. So, I mean, everyone wanted to tell stories about the Internet or the World Wide Web, call it what you will, back then, about technology and virtual reality. This movie, it, it's just not any different. You know, um, you know, with, with, with the virtual space industries and evilish-sounding research facility, um, you know, that's, we, that, that's how we begin this movie. And within 20 seconds, um, we get our Stephen King reference as two characters discuss Pierce Brosnan's work and how it relates to the shop, um, which is something that, that I always liked. Um, you know, what we learn is that he's been working on virtual reality programs with chimpanzees, and the shop wants to use it for purposes of war. Now... I, I do distinctly remember when I first watched this movie. By this point, I was already a Stephen King fan, and so when I watched it, because the the 
the, uh, the the picture for it was on the back of, of every single comic book that that came out um, that that year. So you were constantly flooded with images of the Lawnmower Man, and I eventually wound up watching it um, on television, or I might have rented it. Uh, I mean, I didn't, you know, run out to the theater to see it. It was just definitely one that that wound up on, you know, watching it in my house. And uh, you know, being a Stephen King fan, I was like, oh hey, the shop, it's great. I love that idea, even though you know the the the, the movie itself is completely unrecognizable from the the book. I, I liked the idea at the time that. You know, these filmmakers were expanding upon the mythology of the shop. And for those of you who don't know, the, the shop are the, the primary antagonists of Charlie and Andy McGee from Firestarter. And they pop up in uh, the Tommyknockers as well, and they're referenced in, in uh, The Stand. Um, it, it was an idea that King dropped almost as quickly as he, he kind of wanted to start to really play with it. Um, or maybe he just... Um, you know, really used up, you know, the idea for the shop in the fire, in Firestarter. Um, but, you know, kind of, you know, got a couple, you know, got some kicks at, you know, referencing it here and there. But I just feel that um, any, any work he would do with the shop of a clandestine and uh, secretive organization, um, I, I think that I don't know really what he could expand upon that the Chris Carter and the X Files didn't didn't really do. So I can see why he might have dropped it um, as we as he headed into the nineties. But anyway, uh, we see this chimpanzee strapped to a gyroscope whirligig that reminds me of. I, and here I go again. I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was my birthday um, last month. Um, I'm uh, increasingly approaching the being forty, and it's not. As if I'm rejecting aging, I'm not lamenting the loss of my youth, and I'm not someone that that really looks back. Um, you know, the the nostalgia boom is not something that I tend to get too caught up in. With that said, I mean I I am launching a Twin Peaks podcast, um, and I was all about the revival last year. But I will argue during my 18 hours of discussion on. Uh, Hanging with Agent Cooper, my Twin Peaks podcast, that this was like anti-nostalgia. But, but uh, with, with that said, um, yeah, I am going to be 40 um, in the next couple of years. And, um, you know, um, maybe, I'm, maybe there is something to be said about looking back. And anyway, maybe watching this is kind of filling, you know, filling me with, with some memories here. I know that I got a little bit nostalgic during my Strange Weather review when I talked about Strawberry Quick. Um, and I know that that struck a chord with a number of people. I got a lot of responses from that one. Um, so congratulations, Joe Hill. That was definitely a, a deep cut that, that cut pretty deep um, for, for a lot of us. But anyway, I mean, there is a, a chimpanzee in this movie strapped to a gyroscope whirligig that, that reminds me of, stick with me, 1990s shopping malls. Does that make sense to you guys? I mean, did your mall have one of those things? I mean, my mall did, and it, it was... I don't even know what it was. I never got on the thing, but it was some sort. Well, I mean, I guess I guess it was virtual reality, as based on the Lawnmower Man. I'm not quite sure though. Um, but it, it definitely triggered something within me to to think back um, into the past of <clears throat> of the mall. This scene, though, I don't know what is going on in this scene. I don't know what the intent of this scene. I don't know if it's supposed to be awe inspiring, because here is the thing. Early 90s virtual reality effects, they were never impressive. Okay, Even in the early 90s, this is how the director decides to begin. I mean, at the time in the 1990s, I did not feel, and I don't think that anybody truly felt, blown away 
by this type of effect that the, the director gives us. Um, and, and, and this effect combined with the, the like truly absurd visual of this chimpanzee spinning around the ball with the chimp sounds coming through the speakers as it plays its war game. I mean, it makes for an outlandish and goofy beginning to this movie. And it never loses that tone that is set right away. The chimp uh, then breaks out of its cage, um, you know, dons its virtual gear, and with the only the only way I can describe it, it, it he's got predator vision. It begins killing members of the facility as they come for it. Um, just as the chimp is about to escape, it's shot, and Pierce Brosnan wakes up from the dream. So here is the big question for all of us: Did he was this just a dream about the monkey? Was it a memory of what happened to the monkey, and he was just having a nightmare? The problem is, in a minute, he's going to get a phone call from someone telling him that his chimpanzee has been shot. So was he mind-melded to the chimp and dreaming the chimp's experience? This, None of this, none of this is ever made clear. Um, regardless, uh, Pierce Brosnan playing Larry, uh, he's a man haunted by the world um, and his role in developing weaponry for the wrong people. Um, he is, the, uh, he is the, the, the Tony Stark of 1992. Everywhere he looks, he sees the worst elements of humanity, whether it be on the news or across the street when he sees his neighbor beating his wife and child. For a man who's haunted, he doesn't seem alarmed, however. He, he just watches the domestic violence play out. He doesn't rush to the phone. He doesn't look upset. He just sits back and he watches it. You know, if Larry is supposed to be an empathetic character that we're supposed to root for, they are, they're not doing a good job at making this happen. At the facility, Larry states his case for virtual reality, claiming that it's the key for evolution of mankind. At no point does he ever really explain what the hell that means. He just says it, and we as the audience, we're supposed to go along with it. I mean, one thing that he does dip his toes, he dips his toes into the, the waters of being a mad scientist. He, he never truly jumps in, but I do like that they kind of play with that a little bit. I, they should have played it up, but they do play with it. And as a result um, of him kind of being a, a mad scientist, he is asked to take a vacation. Now, elsewhere, we meet our uh, lawnmower man, Job, played by Jeff Fahey. Now, this character, um, I got to say, okay, I don't want to be insensitive, um, but I, I, I just feel that I do need to address this character and I need to address um, Jeff Fahey and, and, and the portrayal here of Job. Um, by Jeff Fahey, I I believe that this is where Ben Stiller uh, had to have gotten the idea for Simple Jack in Tropic Thunder. For those of you who do not know what I'm talking about, all you have to do is just YouTube uh, Simple Jack Tropic Thunder. It will come up. I strongly recommend that you just go out and watch Tropic Thunder. Um, but anyway, Job is picked up by his boss, um, the Irish Terry. At the gas station, Job stands up for himself by yelling at a jerky-looking fellow named Jake who's smoking by the pumps. We establish that Job, though simple, has enough wherewithal to confront idiocy um, and that Jake is truly villainous because he has no qualms with threatening someone as innocent as Job. And then we meet Dean Norris's character. For fans um, of Hank uh, from Breaking Bad, uh, you guys are going to be disappointed when you see what he's doing with this character here, this villainous head of the shop. I, I can't 
really talk about it. You just kind of have to watch it. There's an accent that he's putting on that is, uh, it's a choice, that's for sure. Um, it's up in the air whether or not it's an effective or good choice, but it's, it's there. Um, it is there, and uh, it's a memorable performance, to say the least. Now, uh, Larry uh, is falling in a sea of floating nerds. Um, the candy, the candy nerds. Uh, now, this scene looks, it just looks ridiculous. Um, i telling you, like, the, the, the visuals of, these, of this movie and the special effects, if you're, you're making this movie about the importance of virtual reality and the virtual world and how it's the evolution of mankind and it's the next step in our development and it's supposed to be awe-inspiring and is the, the least, and I'm talking about someone that experienced special effects in the 1990s. The, the, the effects here are... Offensively bad. Now, um, he is unplugged by uh, his soon-to-be ex-wife, Caroline. They have an argument about their lives, about the changes each of them are going through, and his obsession with the virtual world. He ventures upstairs from his basement and spots Job with his friend Peter, the abused boy that Larry had observed the night before but failed to do anything about. The father comes home and reminds us, in case we forgot, that he's abusive, and once again, Larry fails to do anything about it. He immediately begins slapping Peter around in front of Larry, um, who still does not do anything about it, as well as Job and Terry. Back at Job's place, we realize that he is literally shacked up behind a church, and we meet our newest character, the abusive priest, who has watched over Job since Job was five and presumably has beaten him regularly since then. Now, not only does he whip Job across the back with a belt, but he also um, caresses him. It's, uh, it's icky. I don't know if it's meant to invoke molestation. Um, you know, the scene is followed almost immediately with another uncomfortable moment when Larry lures Job into his home, not with candy, but with video games. Again, I, it connotes the conception of, uh, it connotes the concept of the predator preying on the weak and innocent. Um, I don't know if it's intentional, um, but that is definitely what comes to mind. Inside Larry's basement, we get a special effects tour that wasn't impressive at the time and still not impressive now. Larry seduces Job with another game, a secret game, sticks him with a needle and begins to augment Job's brain capacity. One side effect of this must be that not only does it increase his brain capacity, but also his sexual mojo, as while seductively um, shoving a bagel with cream cheese in his face, he's ogled by one of his clients. Um, remember in Spider-Man when uh, Peter is bitten by a spider and not only gains spider powers, but also a rock and bod. Uh, the same thing happens here to Job uh, because we get the same checking himself out in the mirror sequence with, uh, with extra priest involvement to boot. Job is able to stand up for himself here and threatens the priest. Um, by the way, while on the subject of Spider-Man, I, I can't talk about this movie without talking about Flowers for Algernon, the short story which inspired the movie Charlie, Starring Cliff Robertson, who went on to play Uncle Ben himself in Spider-Man. Now, this all comes full circle. Now, what this movie is, it is just a hyped-up, special effects-laden tale that really is just better told with Flowers for Algernon or Charlie, whichever, whether it's the book or whether it is the, the movie. Um, the, the idea of some simpleton um, gaining mental acuity only to lose it um, 
it's a tragic tale. Uh, and yeah, it's done so well in Flowers for Algernon. Um, it is not done well here. Uh, at the gas station, Job and Jake have a showdown. Uh, Job is checked out again by the young widow and promptly laid out by Jake, who doesn't like that Job has retention and not his. Larry then takes Job to the research compound to continue the experimentation, which now involves those gyroscopic wheels from my mall back in the 90s. After some virtual reality mumbo-jumbo, his brain capacity continues to increase, and then later, when mowing the widow's lawn, he begins to, yeah, mow her lawn. Sorry, guys. I, 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 had, to, I had to say it. Uh, later, Job's mind begins to blur virtual reality with actual reality and demonstrates his burgeoning psychic abilities. Not only can he begin to, to read minds, he's blurring the line between virtual reality and reality itself. The problem with this is why does the virtual world manifest itself in the real world when the psychic abilities begin to manifest? None of this is explained. The experiments continue, the sex continues, Job's ability continues. This continues until Job takes the widow to the research facility in a truly disturbing virtual sex scene. The scene itself notwithstanding, how did he even get into the building without Larry? How did he get her in there? Anyway, in the virtual world, they begin kissing and, and they melt into one another, melting into a flying insect until she gets stuck in virtual goo and she's attacked by a monstrous-looking frog-faced Job. I mean, the, the experience for her is too intense and her mind crashes in the virtual world. She becomes a shell of a human. But what is more disturbing than that is that it looks like Job continues to have sex with her because later on in a different day, it cuts to her on the bed in her underwear. Um... Now, is this supposed to intone that we have flipped, that one able-minded person engaging in a relationship with someone who is not able-minded, you know, the way that she had been when she first showed interest in him? I, I don't know. Job's powers grow by leaps and bounds, and Job can now control the lawnmower with his mind. And that's the only similarity that this shares with the short story. In the facility, Job confronts Larry and expresses that the virtual reality treatments haven't provided new abilities within his mind, but um, old abilities that mankind used to access through magic. Job forces Larry to continue the treatments to see it through to the end. In Washington, the shop attempts to abduct Larry, but he manages to escape. Back in town, Job continues the experiments on his own. Maxed out from the experiments, Job finally confronts his abusive priest caretaker. And in the balcony, he squeezes his head and his suit glows blue. What happened next? Uh, it's uncertain. He uses virtual reality powers in the real world to do what exactly? Does he burn the priest? Does he dematerialize the priest? Is he burning him with real fire with really bad effects? Or is he burning him with virtual reality fire with really bad effects? Not, none of this is, is very clear. Once finished with the priest, Job, with his trusty lawnmower, wraps up Jake with gas nozzles and forces him to look into his eye where he sees Job's face with lawnmower teeth coming at him. This image literally goes into Jake's brain and begins eating away his frontal lobe. Now... Is he eating his actual brain with really bad effects or virtual reality brain with really bad effects? Again, it's not clear. He then goes to Peter's house to lay the smackdown on Peter's dad. Finally, somebody's doing something. He first causes Peter and his mom to pass out before sending the lawnmower after the father. And with this, we get the closest thing to the short story, Death by Lawnmower. It comes complete with a great flying lawnmower shot. 
Larry confronts Job, who now claims that virtual reality isn't man-made construct, but a completely alternate world and will project himself into the mainframe at the research facility in the hopes to become a god of the new virtual world. But what's the end goal here? What will he be able to do that he can't do now? To me, it seems like that if he surrenders his physical body for a virtual one, won't he not be able to control the physical world the way he currently can? Because once he goes into the virtual world, he seems unable to use his godly powers in the real world. Isn't going full virtual a step down? It doesn't matter, though. None, none of this matters. We're all living in someone's virtual reality construction anyway. Everything that we're doing, you driving your car or at the gym or bopping around your home, me podcasting right now, none of this is real. None of it. This is all a simulation. We're all in Job's world right now. Uh, the shop shows up, and they are quickly dematerialized by the glowing head of Job. Um, again, he's pretty powerful right now. Um, he's less powerful when he's a character from Reboot. Now, that's a deep cut. Do you guys remember Reboot? Reboot, by the way, was, uh, for those of you who don't know, was a cartoon on Fox, I believe, with very early CGI graphics. Um, and one of the writers, or possibly the showrunner, um, was a man by the name of Dan DiDio, who went on to become uh, the president of DC Comics. Um, anyway, Job heads the facility and brings with him a swarm of virtual reality. <laughs> this movie is so ridiculous. Uh, he brings with him a swarm of virtual reality bees that make short work of the shop guards who are there to kill him. To make a long story short, Job takes out everyone in his path, and Larry and Job have a showdown in the virtual world tricks Job by blocking him in his mainframe before he can escape into the larger world. And just as he's able to escape, the facility blows up with timed explosives set by Larry. But it's not a happy ending, because as foretold by Job, his birth cry will be the sound of every phone ringing in unison. This is the last thing we hear. Job has begun his conquest of humanity one crank call at a time. So, ladies and gentlemen, thus concludes my review 1992's The Lawnmower Man, not entitled 1992's Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man. So guys, if you haven't seen it, eh, give it a shot. I mean, I, for no other reason, watch it than listen to How Did This Get Made, because hearing them uh, riff on this movie is is truly a joy. Uh, no, the movie's terrible. It's, it's a terrible film um, from, from top to bottom. Uh, everything about the effects, the costuming, the, uh, the the lack of characterization, the motivation, the the, the character arcs, the the plot construction, all of it. It's just it's just not it's not good, not not fully baked um, as a film. But it is it falls within the King pantheon, and I I would be remiss if I didn't get around to reviewing at some point. So here you go, guys. Here is my review of The Lawnmower Man. So I think now with The Lawnmower Man adaptation, I truly have completed uh, the adaptations of Night Shift. I could be wrong. And I think actually some of them, I think that I am wrong. Actually, I think that some of the Night Shift stories were adapted in the TNT, I believe it was on TNT, the TNT uh, miniseries Nightmares and Dreamscapes, um, which actually is not based on <laughs> the Nightmares and Dreamscapes short stories, just shares the same title with Nightmares and Dreamscapes, um, which will be um, 
the collection that I review next. Uh, so I did not get around to reading all of the short stories found within uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. So next week I will turn my attention back to that collection of short stories and and uh, get around to reviewing all the ones that I didn't do the, the first time around. So guys, thank you for joining me. Thank you for coming back to the Stephen King cast. Um, I hope that you enjoyed our ride together in virtual reality. I do apologize for that, uh, the 56K dial-up mid-podcast. I'm sure that it caught a bunch of you um, by surprise. Um, but uh, but for those of you who don't know, that was a sound that's going to stick with with many of us for the rest of our lives. It's gonna it's very very hard for us to uh, to get that song or get that get that out of our head. So I uh, definitely wanted to share that. Okay, guys. Uh, so make sure that you head on over to iTunes if you haven't done so already and leave a review because um, that would really help me out if at any point you have any thoughts that you want to share about the lawnmower man about night shift about anything about anything related to Stephen King uh, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com if you have any thoughts on David Lynch and the works of David Lynch and you want to talk about Twin Peaks and get your Twin Peaks um, email read on uh, hang with agent cooper then you can write to hang with agent cooper at yahoo.com um, you can either write to hanging with a G or hang in with just the N um, at Agent Cooper, and I will be able to get that. Um, be able to get that email. So, guys, uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M O O N spells Stephen King cast.